morning, everyone. It's good to see you today. In this message series, we are asking this question, is it trending or is it true? Now, hashtags will tell us what is trending in any given day or any given week in our culture. Hashtags are those labels that are used uh, primarily in social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, and they help us find and interact on the topics that are of interest to us. And they can be really helpful when it comes to searching, but not necessarily as helpful when it comes to understanding. And that's because hashtags have limits to them. For example, in Twitter, there is a 280-character limit. That's only about 40 words. When you're limited to 40 words, it's easier to convey strong emotions than it is to present sound logic, especially if it's a complicated topic. So in this series, we are looking at some of the hashtag kind of thoughts and emotions that people have formed, um, particularly about the Bible, but maybe just about Christianity in general. Today's hashtag is forgive and forget. Now, I wish this hashtag was true. I would like to forget some of the wrong that I've done. I imagine you're the same. Uh, And honestly, it'd be a whole lot easier if I couldn't remember some of the hurtful thing that, things that people have done and said to me. There are many times where I, I wished I had one of those neural eyes. You remember from the Men in Black movies that uh, you just look into the light, push the button, and you just can't remember what just happened. I mean, maybe after I said something harsh to my wife, I could just take the neuralizer out and say, honey, just look into the light. This, this, I didn't say anything. I didn't say anything. Or maybe you gotten a laugh at someone's expense or I've done something that I know is wrong. It would be very helpful to have one of those neuralizers. But unfortunately, of course, there is no such thing as a neuralizer. And the fact remains, we remember. In particular, we really remember when someone has done us wrong. The phrase forgive and forget is not a quote from the Bible. It comes from a misunderstanding about something God says in the Bible about his forgiveness. Here's what he says in Jeremiah 31, verse 34. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Well, there it is, forgive and forget. But if you think a little more deeply about this, you realize Scripture presents God as knowing everything. What that means is he doesn't forget. He really can't forget. He knows everything, past, present, and future. So so then what does this mean? What does God mean when he says he will remember our sins no more? Well, there's a difference and a similarity between us not remembering and God not remembering. The difference is that we often don't remember because of our limited memory capacity. God doesn't have that problem. But the similarity for both of us is that for both, forgiving and not remembering involves a choice not to focus on what has been done. Forgiving is the decision to let go of the wrong that someone has done. So for both of us, for God and for us, It is a choice. It is a decision to stop bringing the matter up. Now, like with God, it's not that we can't remember what was done, but it's that we choose not to bring it to the forefront of our mind. That's what remembering does. It brings a piece of history that's in storage in our mind from the back of our mind, from the storage of our mind, and it brings it to the forefront of our mind. We do not have unlimited memory capacity. We're we're not God on this matter. But when it comes to the wrong that's been done to us, our ability to remember that is almost godlike. We just don't forget that stuff. 
And the reason is because of how our memory is designed to work, how we recall things to the front of our mind. Recently, I told my wife that I would pick up something that we needed from the store on my way home from work, and you know where this goes, right? I got home, and as soon as I saw her, I remembered. But remembering then was not helpful. I needed to remember when I was driving by the store. Now, why did I forget? It's not that my mind had gone blank for that 10-minute drive home. It's that I was thinking about what? Something else. What is really going on in our minds is this. It's not so much forgetting, but a remembering competition. That's what really goes on in our minds. And the reason is because we can only bring one thing to the front of our mind at a time. For all the talk about multitasking, research continues to show that our minds cannot do it. We can bring one thing at a time. We can move from one thing to the next very quickly, but we can't have multiple things at the forefront of our mind. It's just one at a time. It's a single file line. The thoughts come, and then they go back, and they come, and they go back, one at a time. Now, if you were to ask me what I was supposed to pick up at the store that day, I would have been able to tell you. But at the critical moment, I had brought something else to the front of my mind, and what I needed was still back in storage. So what is it that gets to the front of our mind, and what stays in the back of our mind? Well, the way our memory works is this. What we see as important makes it to the front of the mind, and the rest stays in the background. This is why it is such a bad thing to forget your wife's birthday. Because no matter what you say, both of you know it's a statement of importance, right? If I was really that important to you, you would not forget my birthday. And there's just really no way to get around that. Because we all know that we bring to the forefront of our mind what we think is important at that moment. Now, we forget lots of things, but we almost never forget when someone does or says something that hurts us deeply. So it is impossible, really, to forget the wrong that someone has done to you, to eliminate it from your memory banks, to remove it from storage, especially if that event was a significant one. But what is possible is to remember something that is more important than that wrong. So rather than forgive and forget, what we really need to do is forgive and remember. Not the wrong that's been done, but three more important memories that will help us compete with the memory of the wrong that's been done to us. So this morning, I want to share with you three stronger memories that have the chance to compete with the memory of what someone has done to wrong you. Three stronger memories. Here they are. Number one, forgive and remember that God has forgiven you. Forgive and remember that God has forgiven you. When the memory of how someone has wronged you comes to the forefront of your mind, this is a powerful memory that can compete with that one and can push it out of the forefront of your mind. Colossians 3, verse 3 says, Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. It is impossible to forgive anyone without a strong and persistent memory of how much God has forgiven you. But in order for that fact to have the power 
to compete with and displace the strong memory of the wrong done to you, it needs to become much more to you and to me than just a fact, just something we know to be true, just something we nod our head in gratitude about. That's because of how it is exactly that our memories compete. Last month, my wife and I got some vacation time at a cottage in Northern California on the coast. This is a picture of the place that we were able to rent. It's about maybe 10 blocks from the ocean, uh, redwood trees surrounded. And as soon as we stepped out of the car and I smelled the trees and I heard the ocean pounding, memories started flooding into my mind. Memories particularly of trips that our family would often take to the Oregon coast when I was younger. Now, I hadn't thought about some of those trips probably in years. So what is it that triggered those memories? Well, it was the smells of those trees. It was the sound of the ocean. You see, because we don't just store memories as data by itself. We attach memory tags to everything that happens. We store memories with tags attached to them that help us to retrieve them. And the top memory tags are not necessarily smell or sound. Those are top memory tags. But the very top memory tags for us, when it comes to recalling something, is meaning and emotion. When something happens to us that really makes a big impact on our life, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, it is very easy for us to retrieve that memory, especially if the emotions surrounding that significant good or bad event were really strong. We, we can recall it very easy. In fact, it's so strong, sometimes it just pushes itself to the front of our minds because the tags are so strong. And this is the real challenge when it comes to forgiveness. And that's because the need to forgive occurs about events that carried with them a great deal of meaning and a great deal of emotion. Negative meaning, probably, and negative emotion. And we, we can't forget those things. And we find those memories just demanding for our attention and at times where we're not prepared for that. So we can't really forget those strong memories of how others have wronged us, but what we can do is compete against them, and we can replace them. So why then doesn't the fact that God has forgiven us in Christ counter and replace the memory of the wrong that others have done to us more easily than it does? Well, there's really no easy way to say it, and I'm saying this to myself as well as you. The reason the memory of God forgiving us doesn't easily replace the memory of those who have wronged us is because God's forgiveness doesn't mean as much to us as the hurt that's been done to us. There's just no way to get around that fact. And the attending fact is, let's be honest, as we move through our days over and over again, God isn't as important to us as he really needs to be. Jeremiah 2, 32 talks about this. God mentions it this way. He says, does a maiden forget her jewelry, a bride her wedding ornaments? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. What's being said here? Well, God just uses two things that usually are not forgotten. Why is it pretty unusual for a woman to forget her jewelry? It's because her jewelry means a great deal to her. You know, for my wife, many of the pieces of jewelry are pieces that, that I bought her at significant points in our marriage. And so it's not just the jewelry itself, it's what it means. And that's why she doesn't lose that that easily. I'm not saying we never lose this stuff, but 
That's pretty rare to lose a piece of jewelry that's really valuable to you. And how about a bride, her wedding ornament? You know, for us, the, the wedding ornament is the ring, the wedding ring. I mean, I've, I've never lost my wedding ring. Over 33 years, my, my wife's never lost her wedding, wedding ring. Why? Because it means so much to us. Now, you may have lost your wedding ring, but my guess is that if you did lose it, you notice it almost immediately. And you didn't just put that at number 10 on your to-do list. That moved to the top, and you were doing everything you could to find that wedding ring. Why? Because it represents probably the most important relationship you have in this life. It, may, it means significant amounts to you. Now, if you lost your wedding ring and you didn't notice it for a month, that's a problem. <laughs> There's just no way of getting around the fact that this marriage is not meaning as much to you as it really should. That's why a woman doesn't forget her jewelry and a bride or a groom doesn't forget his or her wedding rings. It means so much to them. You see, it's not that our memory doesn't work. It's that our memory doesn't lie. It tells us what's really important. It's what we remember, what we bring to the front of our mind. But then God makes this point. But we often forget Him. Now, forgetting God doesn't mean that what we need to do is continually think about God all the time. Now, the way forgetting works is kind of like my trip home where I forgot at the key moment to get the item from the store. When we forget God, it, we forget Him at key times. When we really need to have brought Him to the forefront of our mind. You see, to remember where your keys are doesn't mean that you're always thinking about your keys all the time. No, it just means that when you decide to get in your car, you know where the keys are. You remember them, you recall them at the point of need. You know, to remember somebody's name or to remember somebody's birthday, it doesn't mean that you're walking around all day just reciting their name and reciting the birthday repeatedly and you're not thinking about anything else, you don't let anything else come to the forefront of your mind. No, you can't do that. What it does mean is as they approach you, you are able to recall their name at that moment. That means they're important to you. And then as that birthday arrives, you recall their birthday on that day because that's important to you. The same is true with God. It's not that we have to think about God all the time. We, we can't, we've got to think about all kinds of stuff. The problem is, is at the point of need, we leave him in the background. We leave him in storage. We don't bring him to the forefront. For example, at the point of temptation, we really need to bring God to the forefront of our mind and look at this through his eyes. If we don't, if we forget God at the point of temptation, we'll give in to that temptation and we'll sin. Well, we've put him out of our mind at that critical moment. If at the time of pressure in our life, we forget God, we leave him in the background, well, then we're just going to get into panic and not be able to trust God. Maybe at the point of opportunity, you know, there, there's a chance to share with someone about your relationship with Christ or maybe share some truth that's really helped you out of the Bible. And the opportunity comes and it goes and you're driving home and you think, oh, man, I should have said something. Well, you see, that it needs to be at the moment that you bring God to mind. And when the memory of someone who has wronged you comes rushing to the front of your mind, 
if we forget how much has forgiven us, for God has forgiven us at that point, then bitterness will consume us. So the question is this, how can the fact that God has forgiven you and me in Christ become a strong enough memory to compete with the deep hurts of our life? The key is daily. How do we forget God, according to Jeremiah 2? Days without number. We forget God daily. You see, the advantage that wrong has when it comes to the memory wars is pain. Pain is a strong indicator of meaning, negative meaning. That's why we have almost no problem remembering the hurtful things that people have done to us. I mean, it, it can dominate us because pain demands for the forefront of our mind. So how can God ever compete with the pain of what someone has done to us? Well, the advantage that we have when it comes to memory is persistence. If you really want to remember something, you have to bring it to the front of your mind again and again and again and again. And over time, persistence can actually win over even pain. Without that, without persistent, without a persistent pattern of remembering God, God and his forgiveness can't possibly compete with the deep hurts of our life. But you see, if, if we have a daily experience of walking with God, the God who loves us and keeps forgiving us, what will happen over time is that memory, that history, will win out over the deepest pain that anyone has done to you. So the question is, how do you do this? Well, I found James 1, 23 through 24, very helpful, a very helpful image for me. But let me share it. This is what it says. Anyone who listens to the word, speaking of the Bible, but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. This is talking about what we do every day. We all did it this morning, right? I mean, just looking around, I, I can tell no, none of you just got straight out of bed and came here. You at least spent a little time in front of the mirror. Because all it takes is one night of sleep to rearrange stuff. <laughs> and it needs to be corrected. All it takes is one day of living to kind of get things tussled on the inside. Sometimes just a few moments of living. And God's word is to work like a mirror where we, we look at ourselves, the reflection of who we really are in light of what God says. And we see what needs to be adjusted and we make corrections. How often do we look in the mirror? Daily. And probably not just at the beginning. You know, I find myself every once in a while just catching reflections of myself just to make sure everything's, you know, okay. I don't want to stand in front of a window, you know, doing this, but I'll glance as I go by just to make sure we're okay. This is one of the reasons why I find memorizing verses of the Bible so helpful. It's just kind of like a little hand mirror. I pull up. Okay, that's right. I've got to adjust to that. Now, if your experience or my experience with God is not daily, it's just going to be really hard for it to compete with the hurts of life. If you look in God's mirror, say tomorrow, but then you don't until Thursday, maybe you don't again until next Monday, and 
Maybe you get really busy and you don't for a couple of weeks. Well, it, it's just not enough to create the patterns, the neural pathways of bringing God from storage to the front of your mind. It just has to be done daily. If you expect to be able to bring God to the forefront of your mind in the moment of need and there isn't a daily pattern of doing it, your mind just, that's just not how our minds work. So we don't spend this time with God daily because we're really in trouble and he's upset with us if we don't. No, we do because it's our persistence that helps us to not forget God in the critical moments of our days. So now the second memory. Forgive and remember to be on your guard. Remember to be on your guard. 2 Timothy 4, 14 through 15, we read this. The Apostle Paul, early church planter, is writing these words, and he says, Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. Well, that doesn't sound like forgive and forget, does it? The reason is because in many cases, like this one, it would be foolish for us to forget the wrong that someone's done. Now, we don't know exactly what this Alexander guy did, but he did a great deal of harm to a leader of the church, the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul, let's be clear, Paul had forgiven him. He wasn't asking for people to exact revenge on Alexander. I mean, he says, the Lord will repay him for what he's done. In other words, I'm not going to repay him, and I'm not asking you to take it out on him. The matters, I've forgiven. The matter, the matter's in God's, I've, t- I've turned the case over to God, it's his. I've, I've released it. I've forgiven it. Paul wasn't looking for revenge. But that didn't mean that along with forgiving him, they should all collectively have amnesia about what Alexander had done. You see, our memory is a gift from God given to us in part for our protection. Memory is how we learn what is safe and what isn't safe and for the protection of others. And to do that, we need a healthy memory of what's happened. A few years ago, I was driving down Beach Boulevard and I noticed that all the traffic in the three lanes to the left of me stopped. I was in the right lane, the the far right lane, Coming up an intersection, the light was green, but cars had stopped in all of the other lanes except for mine. I had an open shot. I had a green light. Now, I had a green light, but what I also had was 40 years of driving memory. And what went on in my mind was, there's something going on. This never happens. I almost, I don't think I've ever seen that. Something's wrong. And so I slammed on the brakes and I stopped in that intersection or just before I got to that crosswalk just in time for an elderly lady to step right in front of me. She had been crossing the crosswalk against the light. Now, I couldn't see her with my eyes, but I could see that something was wrong with what? My memory. I I knew that something was off. It was my driving memory that told me to brake. This is why I pay less for car insurance than a 16-year-old driver does. I've got more driving memory. And because I have more driving memories, that should make me a safer driver. Now, the operative word there is should. 
Because you and I encounter people all the time on the, the roads that appear to be driving for the first day over and over and over and over again. And their approach is, everyone else has got brakes, here I come. But the purpose of a memory, a driving memory or any kind of memory, is so that we might learn and so that we might be safer because of that memory. And if we choose to reject that memory, we're foolish. Now, I've been talking about driving memory, but it's the same when it comes to people memory. You know, I used to be a lot more trusting of people than I am now. Why? I've got a lot more people experience than I did when I was young. Memories of being wronged have taught me a lot. They've taught me that just because someone can smile and just because they are very articulate and can talk very convincingly, it does not mean that they can be trusted. It takes time to figure that one out. You see, whenever someone wrongs us, two issues come into play, forgiveness and trust. And it's important for us to understand the difference between these two. They aren't attached. They come with the wrong, but they're different. Let me explain it this way. Let's say you loan someone $1,000, and uh, they agree to pay it at the end of the year. The end of the year comes, and they tell you that they can't repay it. And you try to rework, and they say, you know what, I'm I'm just not ever going to be able to repay this. Well, you you have a decision at that point. Are you going to prosecute that case, which you would have a right to do, or are you going to just say, ah, never mind, I'll, I'll, I'll cancel the debt? If you decide to cancel the debt, that's the same kind of decision that we make whenever we forgive someone for a wrong done to us. We, we cancel the debt. So I, I'm not going to bring this up anymore. I'm going to forgive you. The matter is closed. That's forgiveness. But let's say you have forgiven this person the $1,000 debt that they owed you and they did not pay back. And then six months later, they come to you and say, hey, I need to borrow another $1,000. Okay, now we're talking about trust. New money. We're not talking about forgiveness, old debt. We're talking about new money. And forgiveness is a transaction. What that means is the debt is canceled. It's, it's a one-time decision. Now, you may have to keep reminding yourself of that decision, but it's a decision. The case is dropped. The debt is canceled. But trust is a long-term project. It takes time. It can't be done in the same moment that you forgive. You see, it takes time to build trust. It only takes one betrayal to destroy trust. But it would be foolish to forget that betrayal. Sometimes people keep allowing themselves to be hurt again and again and again by the same people because they think that forgiveness requires them to pretend like it never happened. God gave you a memory for a reason. You are wise not to turn your back on someone who has wronged you. Now, you don't, as we talked about last week, you don't need to write them off forever. But you, you need to give them the chance to re-earn and rebuild the trust. But realize that takes time. I mean, Alexander might have changed over time. We don't know. But right now, Paul says, watch out for him. Be on guard against him. Keep your eye out for him. 
The other thing that's important to understand about the difference is forgiveness is one-sided, but trust is two-sided. Forgiveness is one-sided. What I mean by that is it only takes one person to forgive. Me. Or you. When someone does me wrong, I can and I should forgive everyone who does me wrong, whether they admit it and ask for my forgiveness or not. And in my experience, most people who have done me wrong have never asked for my forgiveness. But I can still give it. I don't need them to join in in any kind of way for me to cancel the debt. I can do it. And in doing so, it turns out I don't just free myself. I free them. I free myself. That's one-sided. I don't, I don't need anyone else. I don't need the, the party who wronged me to be involved at all. But if trust is going to be rebuilt, well, that requires two sides. The relationship has to be reconciled in order for trust to be rebuilt. What I mean by that is that requires an agreement about the wrong that was done. If there can never be an agreement about the wrong that was done and they never do say, you know what, that was wrong, would you forgive me? Then there is no foundation on which future trust can be built because there's no agreement on what's true here, what really happened. If they don't think they did anything wrong, how, how can you trust them in the future? Because they'll just do something else and say, well, that's not wrong either. That's the kind of person that you don't want to turn your back on that person. Now, you don't want to hold on to the anger and bitterness. You want to forgive them, but you'd be wise not to trust them moving into the future. That, that requires two to build trust. And that brings us now to the third remembrance. Forgive and remember the sacrifice of Christ. The strongest memories we have are specific ones. If we just have a general, vague memory, it almost never makes it to the front of our mind. And when it comes to the wrong that's done to us, we don't have a general memory of, of what people have done to hurt us and do us wrong. We remember exactly what they said and exactly what they did. But when we try to remember that God has forgiven us, is that in the specific or the vague category? It's in the vague category. I mean, we can recall specific sins, but let's be honest, there's so many of them, which one are you going to pick? So when I say God has forgiven you, you're probably like, over the whole mess that was my life and is my life, right? I mean, it's just this big pile of forgiveness. And so it's a vague thought. It's hard for us to get specific enough to compete with the specific memories of how people have hurt us. So Jesus gave us a very, very specific memory tool that is designed to help us forgive. And what he said was this, I want you to remember very specifically what I did for you on the cross. I want you to remember that event in history with great specificity. My wife and I had the chance to visit and do some touring in Israel back in 1998 with a few friends here from Seabreeze. And my, for me personally, my strongest memory of that time is of the ancient prison in Jerusalem where prisoners were flogged before they were crucified. 
Now, if you've ever been to Israel, you might agree with me on this. Many of the sites that are in the Bible um, don't look like they did back in Bible times, back when Jesus walked the earth. You know, there's maybe a, a church on that site now, or it's pretty much a tourist location with gift shops, and it, it's, just, it's just not what it was when Jesus was there. But this prison was different. This prison was as it would have been 2,000 years ago. Now, there's no way to know for sure whether or not Jesus was actually held and flogged in this prison. But they say, because of the way ancient Jerusalem was laid out, that this most likely was probably the only place that they would have held him during the trial, flogged him after the trial. And so for me personally, as I stood there in that stone-hewn-out dungeon, and I looked at the places in the wall where the hands of Jesus might have been bound, and I allowed myself to imagine the sounds and the smells of that horrid moment, I mean, I, I was overcome with the price that he had paid for my sin. I mean, first of all, that God would take on a body is mind-blowing enough that he would humble himself to, to become as one of us. But then that he would allow with all of his power his hands to be bound and chunks of flesh out of his back be ripped out? I, that's hard to, to grasp. But being in that dungeon, it, the thought of it took on more reality. And it moved me. Now, if, we, if we'd been there to see the arrest of Christ in that garden, if we'd been in the audience during the trial and watched the accusations fly that were unfounded, if we had been in that prison and watched the guards mock and spit and take chunks of flesh out of his body, and if we had been standing around that cross and watched this slow, torturous death, it would be impossible for us to forget the price that Jesus paid for us, compared, of course, to the small price that we need to pay to forgive somebody else. I mean, it'd be impossible for us to forget that. That would rush to the front of our mind again and again and again. But none of us were there 2,000 years ago. So we have no personal memory of it. And we can't all, of course, go to Israel to try to make our imagination of that moment more real like I was able to do. So on the night of his arrest, Jesus gave us a way to remember his sacrifice in very vivid detail. Here's what he said at the Passover meal with his disciples just before his arrest. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant, my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He said, Do this in remembrance of me. The Greek word that is used in the New Testament for remembrance is the word anamnesis, which means to bring to life. It's where we get the English word animate from. 
And what he's saying is, these pieces of unleavened bread, they look a whole lot like the chunks of flesh are going to be ripped out of my back. And the, the red of this wine looks a whole lot like the blood that's going to flow from my body in just a few hours. Jesus is saying, I don't want this just to be a fact of history for you. I want you to have a very vivid and visual way to remember the specific price that I paid to forgive you. A broken and a bleeding body. So since that day, Christ's followers, none of us who could transport ourselves back 2,000 years ago, have transported ourselves to that day in our minds and in our hearts. We have gathered to eat pieces of bread and drink wine or juice as a way to reset our memory around the one event that will forever loom larger than any other thing that anyone said and anyone did throughout time and space. The time when God took on a body and allowed it to be beaten and allowed it to bleed for us. But this memory tool comes with a very strong warning. Here's the next thing that's said in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven. So then, whenever you do this, whenever or whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. What does it mean to do this, to remember this in an unworthy way? Well, the root of the word unworthy is worth. That's the root of the word. And there's, there's two parts to this. There's what you believe about your worth and what you believe about the worth of others. Now, usually we use the word unworthy to say, you know, we're thinking too low of ourselves. But when it comes to the pro cross, the problem is usually that we think too highly of ourselves. We don't think we really need the cross. You see, because the cross, for all of its horror, says this one thing. You and I are unworthy of standing in the presence of God because of our sin. And only the perfect life of Christ, given in exchange for our imperfect life, will ever make us worthy of standing before God. Most people are not willing to accept that. Most people are on the my effort plan. Now, if we think that we don't need the cross, we're thinking too highly of ourselves. And if we partake of this bread and this juice in remembrance of what he did, well, in our heart of hearts, we think, yeah, I don't really get this. I don't need this. Then we do this in an unworthy manner. So if you're here and you haven't become convinced of your need for the cross, and maybe you're just here investigating, that's great. We are so glad that you're here because we want to help you understand. But if you haven't yet personally become convinced, then this is not a memory tool for you yet. So we're not going to single you out, but just let this pass as the rest of us partake of this. And you can observe. You probably can't tell how much this means to us by looking at our face, but just observe as we remember this. So I want to invite the ushers uh, to come forward and distribute the bread and the juice at this time. It's all in one package.
And I want you just to hold on to it, and I will instruct us uh, together as we partake of this in remembrance together. And while the ushers are distributing uh, the bread and the juice, I want to talk about the second part of what it means to remember the sacrifice of Christ in an unworthy way. The second part of unworthy is what we believe about others. When we don't forgive, it's because we think that we are better than them. And it's because we are forgetting, as we talked about earlier, that God has forgiven us. So what that means is if we partake of the bread and the cup while we are unwilling to forgive someone the wrong done to us, we are doing this in an unworthy manner. You see, it's unworthy to accept the forgiveness of God that required the price of this kind of sacrifice and then turn around and refuse to forgive someone else? That's unworthy of the sacrifice. So I have one question that I want to ask you and ask all of us. Who do you need to forgive? Or maybe whom do you need to forgive? And before you take the first bite of that bread, decide in your heart to forgive, to let it go, to cancel the debt. Maybe you'd be wise not to trust them, but they need to be forgiven. And if you are unwilling to forgive, do not partake of this bread or drink of this juice in an unworthy manner. Just hold on to that. Wait till you're ready. Who do you need to forgive? And then consider what is your next step in that? I mean, maybe there isn't a next step in that relationship. Maybe the person is no longer alive and you you can't take a next step with them. But maybe there is. Maybe you need to go to them and try to reconcile, try to talk about this. And maybe the first thought is, well, I tried a year ago and it was a disaster. Well, maybe it's time to try again. Maybe not. I don't know. But what is the next step? Maybe you, you just need to pray for them more consistently. But before you partake, determine in your heart before God to take that next step. So we're going to pause silently for just a few moments so we can all do business with God on this matter and so that we might be able to remember the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf in a worthy manner. So let's just pause silently, do business with God, and then I'll lead us together in partaking of this. I want you to peel back that first layer to get at that little piece of unleavened bread. And now in the words of Jesus, this is my body. What he's saying is this is what it's going to look like, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together.
I'll go ahead and peel back the rest to get at the juice. Jesus did this at the end of the Passover meal, shortly before his arrest. And he referred to the cup as a new covenant in my blood. Covenant is a contract. The original contract between us and God meant that we, we earn it. We all failed at that. So God took on a body. He earned it, a perfect life, and he gave that eternal life in exchange for our imperfect lives. So now the new covenant is written in the blood of Christ. It's a new contract written in his blood. And so in the words of Jesus, as he raised that cup, said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. Join me in prayer. Father, you know the names that came rushing to the front of our mind that we are struggling to forgive. And you heard us say to you in our hearts silently, maybe for the first time, maybe for the hundredth time, that we forgive, that we will let it go. And now, God, we need your help in the memory wars that will ensue. When the thoughts and the emotions of what have been done and what has been said come rushing to the front of our mind and push everything out of the way, oh God, help us to remember the price that was paid to forgive us. And may that memory begin to compete more and more with the hurts of the past. Jesus, we are grateful beyond words that you, having the power of legions of angels, left your hands bound while you were beaten and stayed on that cross for all those hours until you died. May the image of that burn strong in the front of our minds. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.